y'all would, let's go to Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14. We've seen very clearly, as I repeat every week, for the, those that may be listening for the first time or listening on the internet, uh, the book of Mark looks at Jesus from the point of view of being the suffering servant as prophesied in the book of Isaiah. And in fact, uh, we're actually going to see in this text today a fulfillment of Isaiah 50 and verse 6. And so uh, we see some of this coming true before our eyes. But uh, Mark is much more concerned with the works of Christ as opposed to his words. It's one of the reasons why it's shorter than the other Gospels. It follows from one event to another, constantly moving uh, from event to event. Uh, we've seen the healings of Christ and exorcisms, the training of the disciples, and so many other things in this book. And since chapter 11, we have been in the narrative of crucifixion week. Even though uh, I've been preaching in chapter 11 for a few months now, we've only actually gone through about three days in crucifixion week. And so uh, last week, we saw Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and how He was so resolved to do the will of God the Father. And He was just so resolved uh, to the suffering that he was going to have to endure. And, uh, you know, Jesus asked, Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And, of course, the will of God, the Father, was that he go to the cross and that he suffer. And so uh, he was resolved to do that. And so we need to be resolved to be in the will of God, even if it includes suffering. We uh, looked at... Uh, being in the will of God and how the Word of God and prayer are the tools that we have at our disposal to be able to understand what the will of God is for our life. Uh, we saw that Judas came and betrayed him and how Christ was arrested there. And now in the text we find ourselves at this kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership here in the middle of the night. All of his disciples have fled for their life. And he stands alone uh, before his accusers. Now, I want to point this out just as a point of doctrine, a point of interpretation. Uh, this, I think, is really important. But when you read and study the Bible, there's something you kind of need to keep in the back of your mind. But when you read, you need to be able to understand that we come across narratives, uh, we come across scenes, and we come across events. And if you think about them as umbrellas, the biggest umbrella at the top is narrative. The middle and shorter one would be the scenes. And then below that could be events. There's many events in a scene, and sometimes there can be many scenes in a narrative. And the narrative, as I mentioned, that we've been in since chapter 11 is crucifixion week. But when we hit this text this morning, when I read it, we come across a brand new scene. And I think it's so important to point this out because this scene begins with Christ openly proclaiming to be the Son of God. He makes no buts about it. And the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest, they're tearing their clothes in anger, screaming blasphemy. So when he says he's the Son of God, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin said, Oh, no, you're not. But what we'll find at the end of this scene, just a day later, not even 24 hours later, the Roman centurion sees Jesus down the cross. He sees the sun go dark and he sees the earth begin to quake. And he says, surely this was the Son of God. So the scene begins with 
Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin going, you're not the Son of God. And the scene ends with the Roman centurion saying, oh, yes, he is. (laughs) And so that's what we're going to see in this scene that we're starting this morning. Um, Let's read our text together this morning. I'll begin in chapter 14 and verse 53. Um, Mark chapter 14 and verse 53, it says, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off, even in the place of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priest and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which which these witness against thee? And he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, thank you, uh, Lord, for the songs we've been able to sing. Lord, just knowing the truths behind them. Lord, I'm thankful for the family you've put together for such a time as this. I pray that you help me now as I'm struggling with this cough, and I just pray that uh, you would give me uh, clarity of voice, clarity of mind, empty me of sin and self, and fill me your Holy Spirit. I pray that I would say what needs to be said, Lord, that I would not say what doesn't need to be said, and more than anything, Lord, that you would be magnified, that Christ would be uh, lifted. Lord, I pray if there's one that's lost, they would be saved. If those that are hurting, you would comfort them. And Father, I just pray that uh, you'd be here in power and might and uh, God, that you would just clear our understanding. And we'll thank you and praise you for it, Lord. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. <laughs> I want to preach this morning on the thought of standing for the truth. Standing for the truth. We looked last week at being in the will of God. And today I want to look at standing for the truth. And if you're in the will of God and you're concerned about living to please God, you're going to be very concerned about truth because He is a God of truth, and He is looking for those to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so we're going to look at that thought this morning. Now, in this text, Christ is doing nothing more than standing for truth, and because of that, the world is coming after Him lock, stock, and barrel. Both the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders are going to come after him. Just for standing for the truth, the same man that healed the sick, he healed the lame, he healed the blind, he spoke truth, he fed the 5,000, he cast out devils, and for all of these things, they're going to kill him. We can't have all that. We can't do that. And so the world hates truth. They're of their father the devil. He's the father of lies. He loves lies. He creates lies. 
and his children, would, 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 the devil's children, would rather walk a hundred miles for somebody to lie to him than to walk across the street and hear the truth. And that's what we see. But we need to stand for the truth and be prepared to do that. So what can we learn from Christ about standing for the truth in this text? Well, sometimes truth means, number one, sometimes standing for truth means standing alone. Look at verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off, even to the palace of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now, <clears throat> here in this text, Christ finds himself alone. He's been forsaken by everyone and even forsaken by his own disciples. He was betrayed by Judas. And now in this scene, we find that Peter is following him from a distance and warming himself by the enemy's fire. <laughs> he is up there. The enemies here have built a fire and they're warming themselves. And here comes Peter to warm himself with the enemies by this fire. And for the first time in Peter's life, he's keeping his mouth shut. Isn't that amazing how that works? The one time that he could actually speak up and be a witness for Jesus and talk about all the things that he did and the things that he didn't do that he was being accused of, and now he decides to keep his mouth shut. So Jesus finds himself completely alone. But the thing is, he's not going to back up an inch because he's standing for truth and right. He's already resolved to do that. I think about a quote I came across a long time ago from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, the, the great theologian who uh, wrote and preached the, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that lit the fire of the Great Awakening. When he was a very young man, I would encourage every young person, well, everybody needs to read this book, but especially young people. When he was in his late teens, uh, he wrote a book that's been entitled Resolutions. He wrote 70 resolutions as a teenager of things that by God's grace he was going to do and things that he was not going to do. And I read that and I think, a teenager wrote that? Are you kidding me? But I like this. Jonathan Edwards said in his resolutions, Resolution 1, I will live for God. Resolution 2, even if no one else does, I still will. I like that. What he's saying is, is I, by God's grace, I'm going to stand for God even if I'm standing alone. And if you're going to stand for the truth of God and right, there's going to be some times in your life you're going to feel like you're doing it alone. Whether it's at the workplace or school or on the street corner, maybe even in your own family. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And that sword can even divide family members. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Listen, I'm closer with many of my brothers and sisters in Christ than I am many of the members of my own family wise because we don't belong to the same family of God at this point in time. <laughs> and so uh, if, if we're going to be prepared to stand for God and for the truth, sometimes it means doing it alone. And <clears throat> this really brings up a great question. Whose approval are we living for anyway? Because I can tell you that if we're living to please man and we're so concerned about what our peers think and the opinions of others, I can assure you this, uh, that you're not going to stand in the day of persecution if you're not standing now because you're worried about what they think. It's not going to happen by accident. 
If we don't stand for the truth of Christ because of what people think or say, we won't stand for Him when uh, the persecution comes. And, you know, standing for truth, though, is really a lifestyle. It really ought to be a habit for the child of God. And the thing about Christ is He didn't just speak truth. It was, it was everything about who He was. He exemplified truth in everything that He did. He respected His parents even as a boy, as the God-man. He respected His parents. We see this in the story of Jesus uh, being left at the temple when He was 12 years old. He obeyed His parents. He respected them. Um, he lived righteously. He spoke truth. He loved his neighbor. Uh, he spoke kindly with the sinner and yet boldly against the false teachers. And the world hated him for it. And if you care too much about what people think, you'll never stand for truth. It won't happen. Sometimes standing for truth means standing alone. We live in a world that is so concerned about offending everybody that they would just rather offend God instead. And, you know, we're in a straight betwixt two. There's no middle ground here. And who are you, you going to serve this day? Because if you're going to stand for God and you're going to stand for truth, it's going to make people mad. You don't even have to try. I've had people often tell me, well, if you would just, you know, speak the truth in a kinder way, people might listen. I get that most of the time when I've been out there on the street. And while I do say, listen, we need to be compassionate. I mean, being a jerk is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, but, you know, even in those situations that are going to be tense when I go into them, I pray and ask God, I said, Lord, if somebody gets offended, let it be at the truth and not the way I present it. Let it not be because of my attitude. And if you look at my videos, when people interact with me, I try to be respectful. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. I try to answer the questions. I, I don't try to be mean. But what I will say is that the vast majority of the time... That, that that accusation is hurled at somebody about, well, it's, it's your tone. It's really not the tone. See, the world doesn't hate the way we say it. They hate what we say. And here, they didn't hate the way Jesus said what He said. They just hated what He said. And they hated who He was. And so we ought to be more concerned about what God thinks and let the world take a hike. And we're listen, we're living in such a society now, you can't even acknowledge the basic truth that God created them male and female without getting people up in arms. Uh, and so we need to just be committed to the truth and understand people are going to get upset. Listen, God never commands us to be nice to the point where we're going to nice people to Jesus. I've never seen that. I've never seen that. Uh, let's walk on eggshells so nobody gets offended at anything we say, said Jesus, never. It's not in there. The truth offends, but it also sets people free. And so sometimes standing for the truth means standing alone. There's been men throughout the centuries that we could say stood alone. <laughs> I, think, I think it was Doug Wilson that said, History of full, is full of courageous men and cautious men. And it said the cautious men come later and write biographies about the courageous men. I like that. <laughs> sometimes it means standing alone. But the second thing we need to know, if we're going to stand for truth, sometimes not only does that mean standing alone, but it means that we're going to be slandered. Slandered, number two. Look at verse 55. And the chief priest and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put Him to death and found none. Imagine that. For many bear false witness against Him, but their witness agreed not together. They can't even get their story straight. 
Verse 57, And there arose, <coughs> there, excuse me, there arose certain and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. I mean, Christ is hauled here. Before the Sanhedrin, he has these false witnesses that have no doubt probably been paid to say what they're saying. And they accuse him of threatening to destroy the temple, which would have been a pretty capital offense there, a threat to the temple. But Jesus never said that. Go back and look at what he said. What he said was, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days, talking about his body resurrecting the temple of his body. He never said, I will destroy it. He said, if you destroy it, I will raise it up. So once again, liar, liar, pants on fire. They absolutely lied about what the man said. They took a little bit of truth and a lie and put it together and made a story, but they couldn't even get their story straight. And when it comes to standing for truth, let me say this. Those that are afraid of lies need not apply. Because it's coming. Listen, as I said before, Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies. And that's all his children know how to do because the truth isn't on their side. If you notice, I don't care what venue it is. I don't care if it's the liberal media. I don't care if it's our leaders refusing to take questions at a press conference. I don't care if it's in a court of law. You watch the liars, and I can identify who they are because they want to only be in situations where they can have a monologue, where it only goes this way. They don't want dialogue. They can't handle that. It's easy to spew a monologue. It's quite another thing to have a dialogue with somebody who knows what they're talking about that has truth on their side. And so that's what's going on here at this kangaroo court. And because Satan is a liar and his children only know how to lie. If you stand for the truth and for the Lord, people will lie about you. If you stand for the truth, I'm going to make you this promise. And you can go say, Brother Brandon told you this. If you stand for the truth in any kind of meaningful or even controversial way, people will lie about you. It's not a maybe. It's a win. And (laughs) I've had so many lies told against me If I got a dollar for every one, I I would be in a yacht in the Caribbean somewhere with the money that I had made being lied about. Uh, And I'm not, I don't even like talking about myself in a sermon. I'm not, certainly not the hero in this story, but I'm just telling you these things so you can be prepared. I, um, uh, probably the worst that somebody's ever talked about me, at least outside the church, unfortunately, there's been some bad stuff inside the church said about me. But uh, some things as I was just going over this outline that stuck out to me, But whenever we were doing some open-air evangelism, preaching and ministering at an abortion clinic, some of those videos went viral. They were not my videos. I didn't have any control over them. They went viral. And I was so amazed because I was seeing hundreds of people share these posts, and they're talking about it, mostly negative. And this one person posted the video of me, you know, preaching out there. And this woman had this whole story scripted. And at first, I thought she was talking about somebody else. But it's me right there in the video. And she said, now understand this abortion clinic uh, was one building, but there's many buildings here. It's like a joint complex of doctor's offices. So people come there uh, to adjoining buildings for different things. 
And this woman claimed that she took her autistic son to one of these other doctors. It was right there at the abortion clinic. And that I came to their car and harassed their son and tried to hit their son. And, I mean, I've never seen this woman before in my life. I've never even seen these people. And when that woman did that... I've never gotten so many death threats in my life. I could never tell you from this pulpit or in mixed company some of the things they said they were going to do to me and even do to my body after they killed me. And it just, just made it up, just flat out made it up. That's the kind of stuff that you deal with. And I just hate to say it, but that's the way it always is. I remember um, we went to a, a gay pride festival in Tuscaloosa. It wasn't a huge event, so I didn't, I thought it would have been overkill if we tried to preach on the sidewalk, so we just broke up in groups and we're just handing out tracts to people and talking to them. But I always wear my GoPro on my chest because I've just done this thing too many times and I know that at some point in time, somebody's going to find a police officer and they're going to lie and say that you have threatened them, which is illegal. You can't do that. And when they come to me, I said, officer, don't worry. I've got the footage right here. Here's everything I've said since I've been here today. And, well, he lets me go about my day. Well, so we're walking around handing, around, handing out tracks. And I've just got my GoPro on me. And <clears throat> there's this so-called church there. It's got a tent set up. And this so-called church is having crafts for the kids at this gay pride festival. They weren't against it. They were for it. <laughs> well, this woman recognized me from another event that I did preach at. And I, I guess sometimes it's not so good to be remembered. But uh, I was walking in the general vicinity of this tent that had these kids and doing these crafts. And this woman got a police officer and tried to say that I was recording the children. You know, like I was some kind of pervert. Now keep in mind that as the woman is telling the officer this, they're standing right next to six foot five men that are dressed in leotards. Walking around, you know, but, but I'm, I'm the pervert. I'm, I'm trying to record kids. You know, they, they want to feed the kids to these pedophiles, but yet I'm the pervert. You see, that's the kind of twisted world that we live in. And so, you know, I could go on. I don't, I don't want to get stuck on that. But I just don't want you to get caught off guard. And the darker this world gets and the closer the darkness gets to our front door, the more that we're going to deal with these things just for being a Christian, just for acknowledging basic biology. Just for speaking truth, that's the way that this works. And <clears throat> let me say this before I move on, and I'll, I'll run this rabbit and we'll get back on the trail. But while we're here, uh, when I look at this scene and how so many people turned against Jesus, I mean, the very people that, that seemed to be one time for Jesus, maybe the crowds that followed Him and listened to Him preach, and maybe in some that were healed, it seemed like the very people that were you know, for Jesus, and they were honoring Jesus, those same people are yelling, crucify Him. Those same people have forsaken Him here. Who knows, the witnesses may have even at one time pretended to be for Him. And so it's so amazing to me how quickly people can get caught up in a mob mentality. And it, because of the culture we live in, I think it's important to say this. Don't get caught up in the mob mentality. Don't, don't, don't take that bait. Please don't do that. And I'm just very, very careful when I, I hear people say bad things about seemingly good people. You better be careful about that. I would say, too, I'm even careful when I hear bad things about people that 
may actually be bad people or, or even people that I disagree with. I don't just automatically take what's said at face value. And, and so I'm going to do something that's probably guaranteed to make at least somebody mad. Maybe somebody in here and, and maybe certainly people online. But um, y'all know me. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. But I'm, we're going to see. It will be a good test this morning to see if you're going to get caught in the mob mentality. I'm going to take, for my little test, <clears throat> I'm going to take two polarizing, controversial figures, and we're going to do a little test, okay? The first person I want to talk about is John MacArthur. Now, John MacArthur, I'm just going to be real. He's been a huge help to me. I love his commentaries. I love his books. I like his sermons. And do I agree with him about everything? No, I don't. But I'm going to tell you something, and, and history may prove me wrong if we are here long enough to find out. But I believe 100 years from now, they'll talk about him like they talked about Spurgeon. The things he's done are amazing. And I've never, not one time, have I ever seen that man even blink when he has a, a difficult question posed to him on the media. You go look at the interviews with him on Larry King. They've put him on Larry King and different news shows with lesbians and, and, and atheists and Muslims. And they know that they're going to stir the pot when they ask him the questions. And he just nails them to the wall with the gospel. We need some men with backbone like that. And if you want a contrast between a real preacher and a hireling, go look at the difference between the interview with John MacArthur and Larry King and the interview with Joel Olstein and Larry King. Every time they ask that man a question about the gospel or who's going to heaven or who goes to hell, he goes, eh, I don't know, Larry, I don't really know. Like nine times he said that in the same conversation. And so, yes, do I agree with John MacArthur on everything? No, but he is a hero of the faith. That guy is a lion. And we need more of him. Lots more of him. And so I get kind of upset when it's, it's amazing. There's a certain video that came out probably 20 years ago. And for some reason, there'll be seasons where it goes viral, and I'll see it all over my Facebook, and then I won't see it for months. And then it'll pop up again. And somebody has taken about a 30-second clip of John MacArthur, where it makes it sound like he doesn't believe that the blood of Christ is necessary for salvation. And if you look at the video, the way they cut it up, they didn't even stop him mid-sentence. They stopped him mid-word. Like mid-word, they're cutting him off. So I already know there's something up. I went back and found the sermon, and you know what he actually said? He said that there's some preachers out there that make the blood of Christ sound like some magic potion where if you touched it, it would heal you from cancer when the truth is, if Jesus had bled and not given His life, there's no salvation. And if He gave His life without the shedding of blood, there's no salvation. And that is absolutely 100% true. And yet somebody took it out of context to slander the man. And even good Christian people that are friends with me on Facebook share it because they don't like Him and they just believe what they heard. That's slanderous and we need to be careful about that. And the man's been on the air for over 50 years. They could have read his books. They could listen to his sermons. But no, they just take what they hear at face value. You can answer to God for it. I'm just being real. And I know this is not health and wealth, but y'all just if y'all just pretend amen, we'll get through this. <laughs> and so yeah, I get upset about that. Uh, I get real. I get, I get warm about that. And, and so just be careful before you're too quick. In fact, I tell you, I even had a situation where I, I kind of defended him. 
and they were jumping on me. You know what I had to do? I actually, um, when Leah was in the hospital in Los Angeles, I actually was able to go to the facilities there. And John MacArthur was not there, but one of the security guards was nice enough to take me into his office. And he said, John MacArthur keeps a shelf in his office of books for visitors that come by when he's not there. So I got to get a book off of John MacArthur's shelf out of his uh, library. It's in my library now. And the book is called The Gospel According to God. And on the front of that book, it has a picture of a lamb that's about to be slain by the priest on the altar. And the whole book is about the substitutionary death of Christ. But no, he doesn't believe in the atonement. He doesn't, he doesn't believe in the, you know, the blood of Jesus. And so I actually went to my office, took a picture of the book, and posted it, and I said, you don't know what you're talking about. But they just continue because they don't care. We need to care about truth. And we need to stop. Uh, you know, people are selectively outraged. You realize that? If we're not careful, we'll be selectively outraged. And it's amazing. Well, I'll get to that point in a minute. Now, here's where we're fixing to really have fun. So, we're talking about John MacArthur. Let's talk about Martin Luther King for, Jr. for a minute. Now, Martin Luther King Jr., I'll, I'll go, ahead, get, go ahead and give you the bad about him. I believe he was a full-blown heretic. I mean, that man didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He didn't believe in the bodily resurrection. He didn't believe in salvation by grace through faith. He didn't believe in substitutionary atonement. I was even reading one of the papers he wrote for college and when he was in seminary. And he actually made the statement that anybody that believes in the virgin birth of Christ is not a thinking person. There's no way a thinking person could believe that. And so he was a heretic. I mean, there's no, there's no way around that. It's also well documented. He was a serial adulterer. It's well documented. And so, yeah, that's bad. But do we just throw everything out and say he didn't do anything good? No, he did plenty good. He changed this country in ways for the better, many of the ways. Even though all those things are true, even though he was a neo-Marxist, the man was brilliant. I had to write a paper uh, in a speech writing class that I took in college. I had to write a paper on his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. It's one of the most intelligent, brilliant things I've ever read in my life. The argumentation, the, the, the way that he structured his arguments. I mean, he was, it was unbelievable the talent he had. And so what do we need to do with that? We need to learn to recognize and expose the bad and recognize and appreciate the good. Why? Because we love truth too much to be caught up in a mob mentality either way. And we need to stop being so selectively outraged. And what's so amazing to me is there's people that can plainly recognize the problems that MLK had and they're totally blind to the problems that President Trump had. I better get some amen somewhere. Amen. I mean, you know... You say, why do you say these things, Brother Brent? Because I love truth too much to get caught up in the mob mentality. And I'll say this before I move on, talking about truth. If you ever get to a place where you put somebody on a pedestal where they can't do anything wrong, you're in trouble. And if you ever get to a place where you look at somebody and you think they can never do anything right, you're in trouble. Because you're either guilty of idolatry or bitterness in there somewhere. There's something wrong with that. And so they were caught up in the mob mentality here, Caiaphas and uh, the Jews and the Sanhedrin. And so not only do we need to love truth and stand for truth, we need to also love those that stand for truth as well and not get so caught up when you hear bad things about good people. <clears throat> and so now that I've officially made everybody mad, let's keep going. Um, number three, if we're going to stand for truth, sometimes that means speaking inconvenient truth. I think it was St. Francis of Assisi that said, um, 
always be ready to preach the gospel, use words if necessary, that's just crazy. How are you going to preach the gospel without using words? How are you going to speak truth without using words? And I understand what he's saying. We have to have a testimony that goes with it, absolutely. But we have to use our words. Jesus used his words. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses have against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Um, so here at this mock trial, Caiaphas, the high priest, he grows impatient with the proceedings. And it's just such a circus, such a clown show that he feels the need to silence the witnesses. And he stands up and he decides to ask Jesus a direct question. And quite honestly, it was a brilliant strategy because he asked him straight up if he was really the son of the blessed. And this is something that you don't need to miss. This is the only time that God or Jesus is referred to as the son of the blessed. If you notice, blessed is capitalized there. And the reason is, this was Caiaphas' way of asking if he was the son of Yahweh without actually saying the word Yahweh. He, could, he was so disgusted by Jesus, he couldn't even bring himself to say the words. So this is his way of asking if he was really the son of God. And it's, I'll tell you why this is a genius question on the part of Caiaphas. Because if Jesus says no, well then he's no longer a threat. He loses his following. Who would, follow, who would follow a Messiah who openly says in time of danger, I'm not the Messiah? He's not worth following. But if he says yes, they've got him. Self-incrimination. And so that's why Caiaphas did this. <clears throat> and so what Christ did, you cannot miss this. This is so important. I mean, we're walking on some pretty sacred ground here. <laughs> Jesus' response in verse 62, he says, I am. There's a colon there. I like that. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, uh, Jesus, in this, in this verse 62, He has combined portions of three different Old Testament texts. One from the Pentateuch, which was the writings of Moses, uh, which was considered the law. Uh, one from the poetical books. And then one from the prophets, just in case there was any mistake about where He was going with this. Now, the first line where he says, I am with a colon, there's, there's a reason why there's a pause there with I am right there. And it's because this is a direct reference to Exodus chapter 3. This is not the only time Jesus did this. He did it in John chapter 8 when he was uh, having an argument with the Pharisees. And, uh, you know, they were claiming to be children of Abraham. And he said, oh, well, you know, if you were followers of Abraham, you'd follow me. And they say, well, how do you know that? You never met Abraham. You're not even 40 years old. And have you met our father Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> so what he was saying is the I am that spoke to Moses from the burning bush, that was me. So he's claiming to be the Yahweh of the Old Testament. A pretty big statement. In case anybody ever wonders if Jesus claimed to be God, here's one of those places. And then the second part, the second line, where he says, You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. That comes again from Psalm 110 and verse 1, the most quoted verse in all of Scripture, 
where David uh, said uh, unto my Lord, sit in my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. And the question Jesus posed earlier is why would David call his son Lord? Well, it's because Jesus is not just an earthly king. He's a divine heavenly king. And so then the last part that he spliced in here, and you should... Uh, sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven, that, has, that comes directly from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. That was a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And the Jews knew this spoke of not just a man, but God. And in fact, in our Revelation study on Wednesday night, we just made our way through chapter 1, and we saw again that this was the Savior, this was the Alpha and Omega, this was the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. And so Jesus is that. So, I mean, He says such a mouthful here. I mean, He is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be both an earthly and a heavenly king. Like the answer that He gave Caiaphas was so far beyond anything Caiaphas could have ever expected. No wonder they're losing their mind. They're tearing their clothes and, and claiming blasphemy because He's claiming to be God when they obviously don't think that He is God, in which case that would be blasphemy if it was true. And so... Uh, <coughs> No wonder they lost their mind. But what Christ said was true. And we need to use discernment and compassion when speaking truth, but understand that the world uh, most of the time hates what we say and not just how we say it. The world has adopted this idea that somehow if we offend anybody in the slightest way that we're being unchristlike. But such a concept, as I said, it's just, it's just foreign to Scripture. You can't find that. The world hates Christ. It's going to hate us too. And sometimes standing for the truth means speaking inconvenient truth. And I'll say this before we move on, and you can't miss this. Notice the title of this message is standing for the truth. Not standing for your truth or my truth or a truth, because we live in a world where they think that's a thing, and it's not a thing, because truth can, by nature cannot be an opinion. And, and that's what we see today. I mean, people can't even agree about what a woman is, or what a man is. Or, I mean, it's silly where we're at. So we have, to have, we, we have to stand for God's truth. And when Jesus is standing for truth, He appeals to a standard. And that standard is the very Word of God. That's what we have to do, whether they get angry or not. But then, fourthly and lastly, and I'm coming in for a landing, if we're going to stand for truth, sometimes that means severe persecution. Look at verse 63. It says, Then the high priest ruined his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him. That means to beat or to hit with an open fist. And say unto him, Prophesy, and the servants did strike him with the palms of their hand. Now, Mark is not as detailed as some of the other Gospels about this, but what they have done... They have put a hood or a blindfold over Jesus. They're spitting on Him, and they're, they're hitting Him. And as they're hitting Him, they're mocking Him, and they're saying, prophesy, King of the Jews. Prophesize, who was it that hit you? Who hit you? Do you know who hit you? I got news for Him. He knew who hit Him, and He still knows. And so that's what they're doing here. And these religious leaders are striking and spitting upon the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. Can you imagine? I mean, can you picture that scene in your mind? Can you actually see it? What they're doing to Him. The only innocent one who's ever lived. God incarnate. 
who is nothing but love and righteousness and justice and holiness, and they're spitting on him, ripping the hair out of his face. And I mean, I just can't, I can't imagine actually seeing it with my eyes. And it, it, it just, it's almost more than the mind can fathom. And now they're about to lead him to another mock trial before the Gentile Roman leaders so they can kill him legally. The Jews at this time, being under Roman rule, they had the authority to beat someone and to do these trials and to, you know, they had some type of legal authority, but they did not have the authority for capital punishment. So they had to get uh, permission from the Romans uh, to even do that. They're trying to do all this at night. They're trying to get it done under the cover of darkness, which is how the enemy likes to work anyway. And, uh, I mean, this is severe persecution. We're talking about beating, being tortured, being whipped with a cat of nine tails 39 times, having the very organs hanging out of your back and having a crown of thorns mashed on your head. And, and yet that was part of God's plan. And so sometimes standing for truth means... Uh, severe persecution and, you know, historically, it, I mean, just, just read history. Uh, the trail of blood has followed Jesus Christ and his martyrs. I mean, the trail of blood goes hundreds of miles over the several centuries. And even in today, in different parts of the world, people are being persecuted horribly for their faith, for standing for the truth. We've lived in this bubble we call America for the last few hundred years, but it is the exception and not the rule. And that bubble could very easily pop any day. And it may actually cause something severely. We may lose our homes, our, our jobs. We may even face prisoner death. You said it could never happen here. Keep saying that. Keep saying that. The question is, are we ready? And see, this in our country, if COVID has showed us anything, I'm not throwing stones. Please don't think I'm throwing stones. As I've said many times, you have to do what you have to do based on your situation, to feel like you're keeping yourself safe. I'm not throwing rocks, but I will say this. One thing that COVID has revealed about both America and the church is we have made a God out of safety and self-preservation. That, that concept is so foreign. If you find that in the history of the church, I'll eat your hat. You won't find it. Whereas when, when a pandemic hit in the early church... Uh, the pagans would run away and the Christians would run toward it to try to help people. They didn't run away from persecution. They took it on the chin. And so it's not something I glory in. I'm not standing up here with my chest out saying, look at me, what I'm going to do. I'm saying by the grace of God, maybe we can endure this thing. But it has never been the mantra of the church of safety and self-preservation. I when I was in Tuscaloosa, <clears throat> I was uh, driving down the road this last time we went for the holidays. And there was a church on the side of the road, had a big flashing sign. And instead of having scripture verses, instead of having a clear gospel message, instead of saying repent and believe the gospel because Jesus is coming back, their message was social distancing saves lives. <laughs> that ought to be nauseating. To the children of God. Let me say this, and I mean, I realize none of y'all are ever coming back after this message. <laughs> but let me just say this. Do you really think that any of God's children, now I'm not telling you to be stupid, but I will say this. Do you think any of God's children are going to leave this walk of life and go up there to heaven, and God's going to be up there, and all of a sudden He sees them, and He, goes, he does a double take and goes, Hey, what are you doing here? I had so much more that I wanted you to do. It's just not going to happen, folks. 
You see, we live in a society that does not believe that God is sovereign, and it shows. I'm not going to leave this world one second before God has appointed for me to leave. And when it comes that appointed time to leave, there's not enough doctors, medicine, or anything else to keep me here. And the sooner we figure that out, the better we're going to be. George Whitfield said we're immortal until our work on earth is done. And so it's never been the mantra of the church to run away from these things, to avoid suffering like it's a virtue. It may cost us something. But the question is, is is Jesus worthy? Is He worthy of suffering? Is He worthy of standing up for? Is He worthy of speaking up for? And I would say absolutely 1,000% yes, He's the only one worthy. And i tell you what it means, the kind of sacrifice I'm talking about. I saw a preacher friend of mine post this quote just recently, and I thought it was so spot on. (laughs) He said, the scary thing about living by faith, I'm talking about selling out now. The scary thing about selling out for faith in Jesus Christ is there is no plan B. Is He worth it? You better believe He is. You better believe it. In fact, every time I think about the gospel, every time I hear the gospel, I'm reminded of how worthy He is. The God that came to this earth born of a virgin who lived as the God-man and lived a sinless life, the, the, the life that you and I could never hope to live. He took our sin in His body on the tree, took the wrath of God the Father for that sin that we deserve, paid our sin debt, died on the cross, and then He rose from the dead on the third day, and then He ascended four days later, and He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's coming in power and glory. How could He not be worthy? Might cost us some severe persecution. But the question is, will you live for Christ in truth, or will you live for self? Standing for truth sometimes means standing alone. It means being slandered. It means speaking inconvenient truth. And sometimes it even means severe persecution. But He is worthy. And therefore it is worth it. And the reason that our society, even the church, the reason we're not standing for anything is because we're not standing on anything. But as we sang earlier, I asked Him to sing that song, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now, everything else is just sinking sand. We've got a solid rock we can stand on. Let's stand for truth compassionately and boldly stand for truth in these last days.